Hello, I'm Fran Scott, presenter, maker and all-around engineering fan and a welcome to what is the last episode of our fourth series of the Robot Podcast from AVB and what a journey it has been this series and we have met some pretty amazing people along the way. AI will have a huge impact on the scientific research, including medicine. I'm personally very interested in that area. We have a system that you can program, that you can emulate, simulate a brain. And this flex buffer is a robot which has some shelf around it and some software, and it is connected to these different speed lines. And then it picks it up and it puts it together so you can complete the package. For decades now, researchers in the deep sea have been collecting lots of visual data. Fast forward to now, there's a number of different approaches, particularly using machine learning. With robotics and technology, it's not replacing the human, but it's supporting the human. And this week, I am delighted that we'll be sharing some more of the brilliant stories and insights that we didn't quite have time for the first time round, because yes, our mega mix is back. Over the last five episodes, we've been exploring how we're building for a future of intelligent robots, from mega factories to replanting trees in the Amazon rainforest. But as I spoke to these robotics experts, there were a couple of buzzwords that just came up time and time again. And those words were AI and chat GPT. And someone who has his eye on AI, do you like what I did there, is Sami Atia, President of Robotics and Discrete Automation at ABB. And he did his PhD on artificial intelligence over 30 years ago. So he is certainly no stranger to this technology. After many decades of development of AI, I personally believe that we have a very special moment in time where we will really see the real potential of AI. And in my opinion, it will be an integral part of our lives personally and also in business. I mean, today we have simple applications like, you know, Siri, voice recognition, a little bit autonomous cars, but the future will be applications, for example, take healthcare where you will have diagnostics, treatment recommendations. AI can do customer service for 24 by 7 hours. You'll have a system basically that has the full knowledge of a company and you don't have to have somebody sitting there scanning all the knowledge and then just going through and giving you prompt answers. Education will be uh, an area that AI will come in. And I think this voice assistance will become somehow the primary interface for all our devices. You know, take robots, but not only robots, cars, refrigerators, computers. You will use your normal voice and the system will recognize and understand. And it will accept more human-like behaviors in the future. And I think that AI will assist professionals like doctors, lawyers, engineers with advice, design, treatment plans. And it is capable of gathering so much knowledge that you as a medical doctor in that moment, you'll have to scan through tons of other data, but the system can actually do that for you. What I think will happen with ChatGPT-like systems is that they will not scan through the whole internet because there's a lot of stuff that the system doesn't need, but you'll have databases specifically for healthcare, for lawyers, 
where you tap on specific knowledge or take a company where you have the data in boundaries and then you have a database and the system grabs only the relevant data for you. And then it can basically wrap in all the knowledge of all your products, the complaints and so on. And it doesn't have to go through the whole internet and see all that stuff that is really irrelevant. And then it becomes very powerful because also, you know, the source of the data, you know, you avoid all these hallucination of coming up with ideas that aren't really true. And many of us who have used ChatGPT have seen that uh, really happen. So it will become part of our personal lives and our business lives. I think of the example of like navigation. I just moved to London just on the cusp of smartphones. Cycling, I had to get out a paper map and stop at every turn to be like, am I going this way? Am I going this way? But now I can just plug it into my phone and I can just cycle there and look down at my phone and be like, oh, I need to go left. I need to go right. And it's made it so much more efficient. But at the same time, making something more efficient doesn't mean it's less enjoyable. In fact, it's much more enjoyable because I'm doing more of what I want to do and less of the information finding that I need to do that thing. That's a great example. It's very similar to the calculator, but it's a more modern one. I mean, take Google Maps. I don't go anywhere without using Google Maps. (laughs) And, you know, in the past, I used to have this paper look through and so on and you get panic if you need to go to the meeting and you're lost your way and so on this is not an issue today anymore and it's a tool and you don't call it ai don't it's just a tool and why should i waste my time as you say just enjoy the ride and ai will have huge impact on the scientific research including medicine i'm personally very interested in in that area neurosciences and you think of we have a system that you can program that you can emulate, simulate a brain. And now you can talk to it and what it means to understanding how we as humans function. What is consciousness at the end of the day? What is really our intellect? What it really means? I think that's that's fascinating and it will accelerate the development and the research in that area. So fascinating. We need to keep an eye on the applications, the risks, But I'm absolutely sure that as always in humanity, time and time and again, we have seen that we can deal with these tools and we will grow and become more productive and better society. Sami Atiyah, President of Robotics and Discrete Automation at AVB. And you can probably hear how much I love talking to Sami to get his time and his expertise on this. The subject that he loves was just an absolute delight. And another area we looked at in the series was how robotics are taking on those dull, dirty and dangerous jobs so us humans can focus and get on with what we are uniquely skilled at. And one dangerous area where robots can really make a difference is in exploring the depths of our oceans. Kakani Katija is a bioengineer who works at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, studying our ocean life. And she explained to me how robotics has a huge role to play in helping us understand more about what's down there. A lot of maps don't provide the appropriate resolution that you need for biological monitoring. A lot of these maps, right, I think the resolution that people are aspiring to is like 100 meters or 200 meters. Animals, right, are on the scale of meters to centimeters. So at least the current goal or resolution that doesn't give us the information we need for biological monitoring. You know, a direct observation often requires imaging at the scales of the animals themselves. I mean, I want to add that, you know, scientists or researchers estimate that 
there's anywhere from 30 to 60% of life that has yet to be described or is unknown to science in the ocean. And so to fill these gaps would be immense, especially when you think about some of the opportunities in bio-inspired design or medical applications, et cetera, around some of the animals that uh, we've observed so far in the ocean. I think you can really scale your capabilities of observing either through autonomy or human robot interactions or collaboration. I think all those pieces coming together can address this need or this challenge. But I want to be very clear that I don't think any one solution is going to solve the problem. I think it's going to be a combination of all of these things. You know, AI is one of them that will help us fill these knowledge gaps in the in the deep ocean. Yeah, as always, it's a it's a mix of technologies. I would love to know how the technology has changed during your career of being a bioengineer. And if when you first started, you would ever have imagined using the technology that you now use? Well, I, I mean, I should say my background's actually in aerospace engineering. And I only found myself thinking about biological problems in graduate school. And during graduate school, I did some work trying to develop uh, underwater imaging systems that scuba divers can carry. And I fast forward to now and the, the systems that we're creating is, is so much more complex, more robust, you know, on these deep diving robots. Like I don't think I would have ever imagined that I'd be doing this. But I think the ways in which we collect the data, I think the ways in which we process the data is very, very different than what I would have anticipated. For instance, for decades now, researchers in the deep sea have been collecting lots of visual data to, you know, observe ocean life. I mean, and by observe, I mean, being able to count individuals, being able to identify them to genus or species level. And, and that was a, was and continues to be a hugely time intensive task for an hour of video you might collect. It could take anywhere from three to five hours to process it in this way. And fast forward to now, I'm not saying that we've solved this problem, but there's a number of different approaches, particularly using machine learning or deep learning, to help automate this process. And so now we're seeing in some of our tests and developments, you know, a tenfold increase in labeling rate because of the inclusion of these models. And hopefully through a number of approaches where we're going to start to see this process mostly automated, where then human experts are brought in when their expertise is actually required. So on rare things or, or novel observations. So I, yeah, I would not have imagined that this is something that you know I would be working on or this is what the field was doing or will be doing. Kakani Katija, a bioengineer who works at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. And now... <laughs> There comes a time, right, where we all have to be a little bit self-indulgent. And that time, my friends, is right now for me. Because out of all the episodes we have done on Megamix, I have never got to choose my own clip. And the producers have let me do just that. And the clip I am going to choose is, oh, it was amazing. It was my first ever virtual tour of a mega factory. And this was in the episode where we dived into the factories of the future. And Mark Segura, who was president 
president of ABB's robotics division. He walked me through various parts of this brilliant complex. We started in the automatic warehouse where items are picked for production, and then we went on to the kitting line, and then eventually onto the Ryoka and controller lines. Now, by the way, of course, I did question Mark about why it was called the Ryoka line, and he couldn't say for certain, but we both sort of hung our hopes on there being a bottle of wine involved somewhere along the design process. But the thing is, there was one more part of the Mega Factory Tour that we didn't quite have time to feature the first time round. So that is what we bring to you now. You see the arm is built, you see the controller is built, but you need to put everything together in one pallet before you ship it out. And as you have seen, the different lines may have different speeds. So in the end, you need to synchronize. That's why we have one last stop, and that's the buffer. But it's a, an intelligent buffer. It's a robotic buffer. We call it the flex buffer. Let's go and see it. Here, the reality on any manufacturing process and line is that if you imagine a factory with, uh, for example, five parallel lines, the lines, depending what they produce, they go at different speeds. For example, if you are delivering a robot, the robot has three parts. It has the controller, it has the arm, and then we ship, for example, a box which has the cables, the instruction manual, and some CD or uh, software. Well, the different lines go at different speeds. So at the end, before you need to pack everything together, you need to, what is called, synchronize the lines. So meaning that if a line goes faster, you need to have a buffer. You need to have an outbound storage to wait for the other lines to bring up the other part of the product. So that's why we have at the end of our, of our lines also some smart robotics buffer. We call it the flex buffer. And this flex buffer is a robot which has some shelf around it and some software, and it is connected to these different speed lines. And it's basically receiving some goods, boxes, okay, and storing them only the necessary time to wait for the other two, three components arrive from the slower lines, and then it picks it up and it puts it together so you can complete the package. Gosh, that does sound incredible. And these mega factories at the moment, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're using them to obviously make your robots. But what other uses do you think there will be for mega factories? And are they used to make other things as well? The examples that I've walked you through in our own mega factory can be found in our customers, in automotive customers, in electronic manufacturing customers. And I think as this is becoming more state-of-the-art and this technology is deployed to all the factories, that will lead into a number of positive things. The first one is that companies will be able to perform better and serve better their customers here in terms of, again, quality, the product assortment, and really delivering what their needs. They will also become more efficient, as I told you, because, I mean, we don't need to have a necessary stock. We, don't, we are going to lower the reject rates uh, and the quality costs. But also they will become, and that's very importantly, more sustainable. Because as you can imagine, if you have all this digital oversight of the factory, you can really control how much energy you spend. You can improve that continuously. And ultimately, these become even better and greater workplaces. Because people that, of course, still works there, uh, they are released from, let's say, dull and dirty and, and tough repetitive job. And they elevate their work to more uh, improving the system, analyzing the system, 
discussing more and focusing on the customer, analyzing upfront the quality, but not reacting and firefighting. So all this is making uh, these places leaner, nicer, and uh, a better place to work. Uh, good friend of the show, Mark Segura, president of ABB's robotics division. One key area where robotics is going to play an increasingly vital role is within healthcare. And conveniently, in episode three, we discovered how in many ways this future is actually already here. There is one vast site in America that currently can treat more than 10 million patients a year. And it has a $50 million venture fund available to invest in emerging companies at its new and groundbreaking campuses. And it's become this futuristic hub for developments in robotics within healthcare. I am, of course, talking about the Texas Medical Center. And we got to chat with president and CEO of the TMC, Bill McKeon. And he gave us a great example of how robots are making a difference. Let's say you're a patient that is suffering from cancer. A traditional therapy has not worked for you, and you need to find a clinical trial. Clinical trials are very difficult to match people to because they're unique. There's unique aspects of any clinical trial. It's called inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. How do we make sure if you check all the boxes for inclusion and that you don't have something that would exclude you from a trial? This is done manually by research assistants uh, throughout the world at the best institutions. Where AI now comes in is now we're using platforms that basically will search through not just the electronic medical record, but even the details of the notes of your physician and pull all that information together and make sure before you ever get identified, you've already passed all the inclusion exclusion criteria and you're a perfect candidate for that. We do that now in minutes, what used to take months. Imagine if you're a radiologist and you're looking at a tumor on an MRI and you're very good, you're 20 years radiologist, you've seen more tumors for breast cancer patients than maybe anyone else. Our computers now with robotics and technology can actually look at that tumor and run it against 20,000 other tumor very similar in size, and have the computer come back to you and report that we think this is a positive tumor. It's not replacing the human, but it's supporting the human in the sense it was a way in which they can validate their hunches or what their, their concerns are and just really support as kind of a backdrop. But can you imagine that before it's even coming back, the computers and the robots have looked at a technology and said, based on 2,000 or 20,000 samples before, we're pretty sure this is a curious mole on a skin. That's power. That's really powerful. Bill McKeon, president and CEO of the Texas Medical Center. And my word, what a place that is and what amazing things they're doing when it comes to the robotics healthcare space. And there are loads of avenues in medicine where robotics can make a difference, including the behind the scenes lab work, as Robin Cardwell, ABB's global business development officer, shared with me. There's a whole other side of this that I worked in, in digital transformation. And so when you look into the microscope, you make a decision 
Do the cells need to like go back to the incubator? Do you need to change media? Do you need to do this? At a prior role, I actually worked where we were using AI and machine learning to automate that visual inspection. If you had a robot on that, the robot could respond to that data-driven call that the machine made. Is that it? Or are there other benefits to using robotics in this way? You know, I think COVID really taught us that patients are being treated by people too. And so robotics and automation can really help those people do these either tedious tasks, tasks that can cause injury, just things that really take away from the actual patient care. So not just improving the quality and improving efficiencies, but just helping either doctors, nurses, laboratory technicians be able to do their actual jobs versus some of the tasks that could be automated. When it comes to the responses, I suppose both from those working in healthcare and the patients themselves, what kind of responses do you have about robotics being there in the hospitals and throughout the system? Well, I would say initially in my career, it's been very skeptical at first. Early on, you know, they're wondering how this is going to work. And one of the concerns I've heard is, is this going to replace my job? And that's not the case at all. I really look at robotics and automation as amplifying the person and being able to improve what they can do to help more patients. Once they see the possibilities and are actually working with it day to day, I think there are quite a bit of benefits that are achieved. But I believe that they start out skeptical and that's okay. And I think most of the people we're dealing with are scientists and doctors. And so that's their job. Robin Cardwell, ABB's Global Business Development Officer. While the benefits of AI are clear within medicine, there is always going to be the matter of trust when it comes to this type of technology. So how do we ensure that it's always working in our favour? Well, in episode one, I covered exactly that subject with Kate Devlin, who is a reader in Artificial Intelligence and Society at King's College London. I work on a a really big project called Trustworthy Autonomous Systems Hub, and it looks at AI and robotics in terms of whether or not they are trustworthy. Are they safety critical or will they fail on you at exactly the wrong moment? This could be things like guidance systems on ships or it could be self-driving cars. But it also looks at how we, the end users, perceive technology to be trustworthy. So do I feel I can trust the robot that I'm talking to or the AI that I'm interacting with? And those are really key because trust is a a major part of acceptance. We will feel more secure. We will feel happier. We will feel better about a system if we trust it. We also have to trust it because we're also giving it huge amounts of data. So we want to know that our data is safe and that's not always the case. So there's Lots of different ways of looking at trust. And I was at a, a recent meeting where we were all working on the same overarching project on trust, but we were coming at it from very, very different directions. So if you ask a social scientist what is meant by trust, it'll be very different from what a cybersecurity person thinks. So the cybersecurity people were saying things like trust is something that will lead to vulnerabilities that could be exploited. So we have to be really careful. Whereas I'm thinking, but trust is so we can build a rapport with the machine, be able to depend on it. My more fluffy way almost of looking at this, I'm interested in the emotional reactions that people get from machines and with machines. Whereas someone working on the very technical side of of security or of validation will be interested in 
how can we ensure that this is not going to fail on us and it's not going to be exploited? So even within one project, there are so many aspects to this. Kate Devlin, reader in Artificial Intelligence and Society at King's College London. And what a brilliant discussion that was. But that brings us almost to the end of our look back at our series where we've explored and discovered many things about the future of robotics and AI. But if I may, just before we do bring things to a close, I also met Jim Carroll, who is a global futurist and keynote speaker. And he loves nothing more than discussing the ins and outs of the futures of factories. And he had some really interesting thoughts on next steps when it comes to industries and technology and how this will affect us all in the decades to come. I think we have to make manufacturing sexy again. I think we have to get across to the next generation that there is tremendous potential. There's tremendous excitement. There's a tremendous opportunity. And one of the ways I've seen that is with the Global World Skills Organization. World Skills is a global initiative that operates on a country by country basis to encourage young people to get involved in traditional skills and careers and opportunities. And I opened the World Skills competition in Sao Paulo, Brazil a number of years ago. And in that event, we had teams from 110 countries around the world competing in areas like 3D printing and woodworking and other kinds of advanced digital skills. And when you look at the fact that on the show floor there at that competition, I was using a virtual welding headset operating a welding machine 3,000 miles away using some sort of heads-up display, that's where we can get the next generation excited about the opportunity in the world of manufacturing because it speaks to their heart. It speaks to the fact that they are digital. It speaks to the fact that they have advanced ideas on how we can shape our world. If we make manufacturing exciting again, that's the first step to accelerating what we can do with an investment in skills and education. And that totally makes sense. Gen Z, they've grown up with microcomputers being in schools and coding being in the curriculum. What's disappearing is a lot of the unsophisticated routine jobs and process that defined manufacturing in the past. What is appearing is a need and a demand for highly specialized skills that can deal with this new world of digitization. Look, I often repeat the phrase that one manufacturing organization said to me that we don't have a shortage of manufacturing jobs throughout the world. What we do have is a shortage of manufacturing skills. There is this risk that those in certain slices of society that have those skills will be fine, but those who have perhaps traditionally worked on the factory floor may not have the skills could be left behind. So no, you are absolutely right. It's the skills shortage and it's making sure that things are in place to train those skills for everybody. Yeah, it's retraining, it's acknowledging the issue, it's understanding that the path to the future is not necessarily easy. It does take a significant investment. And the CEOs of manufacturing organizations that I deal with, by and large, have come to recognize that. They know they have a skill shortage and they know that they need to go at this from an industry perspective to solve that very basic skills challenge. And beyond skills training, Jim also told me that we need to look to the future of resource management. I find one of the most fascinating trends emerging right now is what we're calling design for deconstruction. And that is the concept that we're not just going to design the product to get it to market, but we're going to design it 
with circular economy concepts such that we can deconstruct it for reuse of those component parts on the other end. And leading this is the high-tech sector, organizations like Apple. When we design an iPhone, an iPad, a new Mac, we're not designing it just to bring it to market. We're designing it so we can eventually take it apart and reuse those materials. A lot of talk about that in the automotive sector as we finally get into the inevitability of the electric vehicle. In essence, cars that are big computers with big iPads on wheels that have a big battery and we're designing for deconstruction so that we can disassemble and reutilize those battery components for the next generation electric vehicle. Tremendous opportunity there, tremendous excitement. Realization that we in the manufacturing sector have to be stewards for the environment with everything we do going forward. Jim Carroll, global futurist and keynote speaker. Well, that is sadly it for this series of the Robot Podcast from AVB. A huge thank you to all of our brilliant guests over the past six episodes. Such a fantastic insight into how robotics and AI are giving us this glimpse of a future of what can be achieved by them doing what they are already doing. And I hope you found it as fascinating and as thought-provoking as I have. I'm Fran Scott. The Robot Podcast is a Fresh Air production for AVB. The producers are Graham Seaman and Izzy Clark. And don't forget to follow now for free wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Part of the ABB Decoded series. 